Hey, it's Ed. Before we get started, I want to thank four brand new podcast supporters, Jeff Stevens, Dan and Jennifer Skeeters, and Matt Nunez. Jeff, Dan, Jennifer, and Matt all signed up to be Patreon supporters of the podcast, which means that they support it on a monthly basis. If you're interested in learning more about that, you can go to mountainandprairie.com slash support. Second thing is the tickets to the event in Bozeman continue to sell, which I'm thrilled about, and I really appreciate everybody who's already jumped on board. It's still over three months out. It's on August 30th of this summer in Bozeman, Montana at the Ellen Theater. You can go to mountainandprairie.com slash Bozeman to learn more about it. But if you live up in that area, you're going to be up there Labor Day weekend, you should come by and check it out. The tickets are pretty inexpensive, and they are selling. So I would encourage you to grab one or maybe grab like a 100 of them if you're so inclined. But I'm really looking forward to seeing so many of you all in person, and it's going to be a, a really fun evening. So thanks for the support in advance on that. That's all I got for now. Here's the podcast. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is James Decker. James is a farmer, attorney, and the mayor of Stamford, Texas, a tight-knit agricultural community located about 45 minutes north of Abilene. James grew up in Stamford, left for college and law school, but immediately returned home to begin his career. His love of his hometown and desire to contribute to its success far outweighed any material success that could result from practicing law in a big city. With his service-oriented mindset and natural leadership abilities, James worked his way up from city council to mayor, all while working as an attorney and growing his family. Like so many devoted small-town mayors, James is driven by a deep desire to see his community thrive, despite the many forces that seem to be conspiring against small-town America. He approaches local politics with an inspiring amount of focus and determination, and he's not afraid to seek out new ideas from a variety of sometimes unexpected sources. His weekly essays are worth a read, whether you live in Stanford or not. He explores subjects ranging from the nuts and bolts of economic development to the writings of Wendell Berry to quotations from Theodore Roosevelt. James is a shining example of the positive impact that one passionate person can have when he or she decides to lead with enthusiasm, optimism, and old-fashioned hard work. We covered a lot in our conversation, starting with his upbringing in Stanford and some of the history of the town. We talk about how he chose to return to Stanford after law school, despite having plenty of other opportunities elsewhere. We talk about the challenges facing rural America and how he chooses to approach economic development with an aggressive, proactive posture. We talk about his mentors and heroes and how his love of history and biographies inform his leadership. We obviously talk a lot about Wendell Berry and Theodore Roosevelt, as well as his favorite books and our shared love of the greatest movie of all time, Roadhouse. The West is full of many small agricultural towns, 
and many of those communities share the same opportunities and challenges facing Stanford. I think you'll be inspired by this episode, so be sure to check out the notes for links to everything we discuss. Hope you enjoy. When you meet somebody for the first time, never met them, and they ask you that question people love to ask, what do you do? How do you answer that? Well, I guess it's pretty simple and, and straightforward. I like to. I used to say that I was a, a lawyer and farmer, and I got that from a buddy of mine was introducing me to some people at a cattle convention, and he said, oh, he's a lawyer slash farmer. And I thought, you know, I like how that sounds. So <laughs> now, now I say lawyer, farmer, and mayor of Stanford, Texas. Well, I want to talk about all three of those, and but maybe the, the best way to start is talking about Stanford. If you could just kind of set the scene, because even though you're from Texas, I'm from North Carolina, I feel like there are so many overlaps in the way we grew up in the communities we grew up in, and we've also got really cool accents, which is a bonus for everybody listening. But um, can, you, can you just kind of set the scene? Where is Stanford? How many people live there? What's the, the town like? So there's about 3,000 people in Stanford, and uh, it's about if you're familiar with Texas, it's about 45 miles north of Abilene, which is the nearest big city, the nearest place with a with a Starbucks and a Dillard's and places like that. And if you if you're from the I guess from the 30,000 feet scale back, we're 150 miles west of Dallas, so we're smack dab between Dallas, west of Dallas, and east of Lubbock, right on the right in the in the big ranch country, so to speak. All the bunch of all the famous historic ranches, the four sixes, the Pitchfork, the Wagner, the Swenson, the R.A. Brown, uh, the Matthews, the Nail, those are all within an hour's drive or less, or a couple of those are right outside of town. Got it. And so what are the, I guess agriculture is is obviously up there, but what are the the main kind of economic drivers in and around Stanford? So it's, you know, it's an agriculture-based economy. Cattle, uh, cotton, wheat, we're also in the in the cotton country, but we're um, we're, we're not the ones that are blessed with uh, irrigated um, uh, irrigated farming. We're 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 dryland cotton farmers in this part of the world, which which caused some people to reevaluate our judgment and, and probably fairly fairly so. A dryland cotton farming when it rains about eighteen inches a year max is a is a dubious and adventurous proposition to say the least. So, but Stanford is also the. Uh, it was built as a kind of a trade center. It was originally a, a railroad town. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where the three where three different railroads met, and they had a big railroad roundhouse and uh, uh, facility here, and it had a bunch of produce and grocery warehouses. And so it was the shipping point and the trade center that serviced all the all the outlying towns and in several you know basically within a day's ride in the early 1900s. Got it. And. So did you – you grew up there, I'm pretty sure. Is, how long has your family been there or in that area? So we moved to Stanford when I was two years old. Okay. I'm 30 – I'm 30 – fixing to be 35. So essentially my, it's the only home I've ever known. Uh, but we – my family's all from Haskell County and Knox County, which are the two neighboring counties to the north. So both sides of the family have been in this part of the world for a while. My um, – all came to – came to this part of the world in search of um, search to their fortune and treasure in the late ni- late 1800s and farming and 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 that sort of thing and um, some were more successful than others and and success was a, a relative term when you're sharecroppers and you know homesteaders in West Texas in the in the late 1800s I love Texas history and I, I need to learn more about it but but I, I went to that the 
Texas State. I guess it was the Texas State History Museum in Austin a few years ago. Yeah, have the, you been to that thing? The, oh, the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum. It's amazing. It's it's amazing. I've been in there. I think twice. It's it's super cool, and it's you know it's got all kinds of history, and it's and it's named after one of Texas' great legends too. So I'm kind of partial to it from that purpose. Um. Uh, yeah, we, we we might need to dig into that a little more because I need I need good uh, Texas book recommendations. But all right, so you grew up you grew up there, and what was your what was your childhood like in, in Stanford? I mean, how was just kind of a standard American childhood? I bet it's pretty similar to mine, actually. Yeah, for the most part, my my mom was a school teacher until she had multiple kids and and stayed home, and uh, then my uh, my dad was originally an ag teacher and then was in farm credit as a loan officer and then left farm credit to be a be a financial advisor so he's in the in the been in the investment business for about 20 25 years but basically kind of servicing the same same types of people he used to loan money to in farming and he's he's on the west side of the, his office is on the west side of the square downtown here in Stanford and my law office is on the north side of the square so you went off to college went off to law school where did you do both of those I went to to college at Texas A and M, got a got a degree in agribusiness, and then um, and then went to law school at Texas Tech. So I imagine you know coming out of law school, you know you got you got plenty of options. You can kind of take it in any direction you want wanted to go. So why did you decide to return back to your hometown? What was the the driving force behind that? Well, that had always been my goal was to come back to Stanford. I thought. Um, thought maybe it might take me a few years to get back. I might have to make a sojourn as a lawyer, you know, either in Abilene or somewhere farther away for a few years till I was ready to come back. But, but that, that was my, that was my ultimate goal. And I tell people this and I think they sometimes they think I'm, I'm making it up, but my law office downtown, uh, is a building that I've wanted to have ever since I was a little kid. It was, uh, it's a historic building downtown that was built by West Texas Utilities Company, which is a big, uh, big electric utility in Texas that was kind of the behemoth that employed uh, more people in the communities and was a big community partner uh, from the early 1900s up until the you know consolidation and deregulation changed the electric utility business in Texas in the 1990s. But they built this building. It's got these Spanish tiles on it on the outside and and just all kinds of just cool architecture. It's got this bronze awning out front. And and I, when I was a kid, I thought I don't know what I want to do, but but that'd be really cool. If my office was in that building, so <laughs> awesome. I had the chance to to join a lawyer here in town, and he actually he and I actually put in an office here in this building. I renovated the building and leased it out to the law firm, and then he and I worked together for about two years till he went off and did his uh, did, did a different thing, and I did my own thing, and I stayed right here. So. I, th- I think I told you this, or we emailed a bit about this, but your story is very, very, very similar to my dad's story. And my dad is in the insurance business, um, but kind of he—he he always he loved our hometown of Tarboro, North Carolina. Went off to college and knew that he wanted to come back immediately to Tarboro. And you know, he had every option you could you could think to have when you're a 22 year old guy, and yet he chose to come back and has kind of. You know, his whole his whole life has been devoted to building up this community, and it seems like you're in the the somewhat early stages of a, that's a similar path. I mean, like when you're a kid or before college, you know, what was it about that town that really stuck in your head and made you want to come back? Because I think I mean, I just think it's so cool, and it's it's the exact opposite of what mo- or it's very opposite of what most kids 
coming out of college want to do. You know, they have these big dreams of going out and doing some crazy thing. And But both you and my dad immediately wanted to go back to their hometown. So what was driving that, if you can figure you know, it out? You know, it was a um, – it was a product of my experiences growing up. You know, I was, I was very fortunate and, you know, successful in school activities and, you know, and FFA and academic competitions and all that sort of thing. And, and it was, you know, I was just, just felt very fortunate and very blessed and by the community because it's a very supportive community. You know, we're kind of in the, you know, I didn't mention oil and gas as an economic driver of the community because we're kind of smack dab between two, um, two oil fields on either side of us, you know, several miles away that, you know, several towns over that, um, that we, we haven't really benefited. You know, it's not an oil boom town with lots of old, old money. Yeah. It's just kind of a, it's kind of a regular blue collar, you know, trading center that, you know, didn't have, you know, some big old families that kept everything going and financed. It's, it's one of those places that, you know, the, the community just kind of looked out, took care of folks. And when you're, uh, you know, gave, you know, scholarships, you know, that there are more scholarships awarded to high school seniors here, you know, 500, a thousand, 2000, whatever from different families and different people that just want to support the kids that more so than, you know, I found that other communities do. And, you know, when somebody's, you know, needing a fundraiser or a benefit to help somebody who's sick or trying to go to a camp or whatever. The community is very supportive. And, you know, that's just always been the mindset here, which is kind of, it's kind of like we've just been, it's a, it's not a, it's not a wealthy town by any means. Some folks would call it a, you know, to some degree a poorer community, but it's always been one that's kind of, uh, has, has worked, has worked to help folks when they need it. And, and that was the product of the, of the leadership and the, you know, the generations before us. And I just, you know, I benefited from that as a kid. And I just felt like that was, you know, it needed people like me to continue that legacy that, uh, that those old guys, you know, guys that were, you know, old now, but weren't old when I was a kid and generations before that were, that were old when I was a kid and are, you know, no longer with us, you know, to follow in the footsteps and, and keep that path going with those guys. Cause you know, within the community, cause you know, you could, you could go somewhere and, you know, you know, and you know how it is, the grass isn't always, always greener. You could go somewhere in a big city or a suburb or even a smaller community, somewhere where nobody knows you and that's fine, but you have to establish your roots and, and learn and, you know, hopefully get involved and hopefully make an impact or, or I can come back right here and be ready to make an impact immediately. It's interesting when you talk about the the economy there and how it's, uh, you know, relatively poor community compared to some of these others, because that's exactly how my hometown was. When you look at a county map of North Carolina, you know, Edgecombe County, where I grew up, is is one of the poorest regions. But that community of my hometown is one of the most tight-knit communities I've ever experienced. And it's it's interesting how I think people move to big cities and suburbs and that kind of thing for the economic um, upside. But, you know, in the end, you, you can have a lot of money in your pocket, but you may not – you would not have the community you can have in these smaller towns. And it's it's kind of a – two sides to a coin, you know, that you, you can leave to try to make a – ton of money but by doing that it's going to be hard to to find that those kind of community ties that you find in these small towns i don't really know where i'm going with that but it's just kind of an interesting observation um when you when you talk about some of the older folks that were older when you were a kid um who like does anybody come to mind specifically people you admired from from afar and that may have played into your your decision to want to come back to that town you know it, it, to some degree yes you know there were some old guys that were 
lawyers and entrepreneurs, you know, before that was a, before that was a word, they just had a bunch of different businesses and, uh, you know, and some of those guys that were ranchers, you know, the, you know, the Stanford, Stanford was founded by the, by the Swenson family who was the, um, uh, S.M. Swenson was the first Swedish immigrant to Texas and ended up with all this land um, out here and then ended up they ended up bringing Swedish settlers over. And so a lot of folks in Stanford are descended from those Swedish settlers. And, you know, his sons were um, instrumental. And, you know, they when they helped set up the town, they, they helped set up the, the waterworks and the electric company. And, you know, they did all these things. And, uh, you know, this is we're talking early 1900s and teens and 20s and you know one of them was president of first national city bank of new york which today is Citibank and Citigroup, and mm-hmm. he was chairman of the, he was chairman of the board of that thing and but they had their ranching interest out here and they were always um they were they were always instrumental in in making sure the community was set up right and done right and and you know selling land to the folks that were farming from them and you know they wanted to make sure they left a legacy a lasting legacy here in the community that was that would continue on for for future generations and then there's just a there's just a lot of those a lot of those guys just that you if you read the Stanford history you know names that wouldn't necessarily mean anything to uh, to anybody else but you know guys that either you know had an oil had a had a small oil company or they owned a owned a bank or they owned a dry goods store or a hardware store and and, you know, you know, they've been dead. Some of them have been dead for for 50 years. But, you know, they've got streets named after them here or they or some of them mysteriously didn't have a street named after them. And I'm fairly certain they probably refused that honor because they didn't think it was they didn't think it was worthwhile for them to want to name it after somebody else. But you see their pictures looking through the museum and stuff. And you can see those guys dedicate their lives to basically carving out a community on the dusty Texas, West Texas frontier. And and they left it. And, you know, town was founded in 1900 and you know in 2019 it's still it's still going and it wouldn't have been possible without those guys just trying to trying to scrape it out and create it from scratch so when you compare stanford to other towns in in west texas or or really just throughout the country you know when when i I spend a lot of time in different small towns and it seems that there's some that have they may not have all the money in the world but they have um, a ton of community pride and a sense of um, uh, just a tight knit community, and people are proud to be from there. And then, kind of the other side of the spectrum, or small towns that may not have much money, and nobody re- really seems to care. And there's it's just kind of withering away. Um, sure. wh- why do you think one? Why do you think some towns are able to ha- keep that pride, and others are not? You know, I think it's a product of the of the leadership, and and I don't know that you know. Stanford's not perfect. You know, last thing I want to do is let ever let anybody ever think that uh, you know it's you know it's a perfect idyllic community that's yep. like a, out of a out of a you know novel that you know that's um, that's not real life. Um, you know, we got our problems. We got you know streets aren't we? We need more work on our streets. Our water and sewer system needs more repair. You know, it's it's a, you know too many vacant lots and overgrown you know overgrown lots and abandoned houses in the community but you know it's it's a community that cares about its people you know years ago um um when my when my family had the chance to move to Stanford, my granddad he was one of those guys that was a that was an entrepreneur before he ever you know before it was a it was a word you know yeah. and, and he had everything you know some people everything that 
everything they touch turns to gold where everything everything he touched you know you know sometimes it seemed like it fell apart you know he had the he had chickens and then they flooded you know flooded out and he lost 2000 2000 chickens you know he had he hauled cotton burrs uh, out of the gins which is a hard way to make a living and they had trucks burn up and everything else and you know catch on fire and just just every i mean he was just 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 hard working trying to make a living and sure. he ended up retiring as a as a bread man from Miss Baird's bread company and but before that his 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 dad, so my great granddad, had started a a bakery, and they made fried pies, and among other things, they they delivered about five thousand fried pies a day back in the back in the nineteen fifties in this part of the world. That was kind of in the kind of the peak of the population around or in this in this area of West Texas, and so they were making and hand rolling uh, and then delivering five thousand fried pies and. So he knew all the communities in the area, and my dad had the opportunity to move to Stanford, and he asked my granddad, he said, you know, what's, um, he said, you know, what do you think about Stanford? He said, you know, I flew there, it's not necessarily the prettiest town, uh, you know, it doesn't have a lot of, you know, necessarily, you know, legendary, you know, architecture where it's all, you know, it's built the same way by some, you know, German immigrants or whatever. It's just kind of very utilitarian town, I would say, and my granddad told him, said, you know, he said, in all my years as a delivery man, he said, you know, delivery men aren't always, weren't always treated well in communities because, you know, people think they're stealing from them or they're up to no good or trying to take money or whatever. And he said, but I was never treated as well uh, anywhere as I was in Stanford. He said, it's the, he said, it may not, town may not always look like much, he said, but the people are, are second to none. And that's always stuck with me. And I think that's why Stanford holds on. You know, it's got its issues. It's got its challenges. And we can talk about that in a minute, but uh, it's the people um, it's people have always been been the the life force and the lifeblood of Stanford. You know, I, one of my very first essays that I that I write weekly was about um, empty buildings and empty people, uh-huh. and it was a uh, we, we we've got a hometown boy who's a wide receiver for the for the Pittsburgh Steelers right now. He he won a scholarship out of high school at Oklahoma State, ended up being first team All American, won the won the Bolitnikoff Award as the nation's best wide receiver in Oklahoma wow. State. And just a, just a good kid, you know, first kid that ever, you know, that was recruited as a D1 athlete and not walked on uh, in, you know, probably 50 years in Stanford. And, and so he's thriving and doing well. And there was a national sports, college sports website came and did a story about his family. And, and this um, author, he wasn't from Stanford. He's from, I think, Iowa or, you know, kind of up in the upper Midwest. And and he, he wrote about, you know, Stanford had you know, a lot of vacant buildings, you know, businesses that had closed down and that sort of thing. But he was talking about how its people were, you know, the, how great its people were and how caring and supportive they were of James Washington, who's this football player, and, and you know, just about each other. And, and, I, and that inspired me to write this essay. And I said, you know, uh, you can do something about the vacant buildings. It's a lot harder to do something about, about the vacant, empty people. And there's a lot of communities that have, you know, the empty people. We, we may have empty empty buildings, but we don't have empty people. Well, those essays, I think that's a, I'd love to talk more about those because that was, we connected online somehow. And we were just talking before we started recording about how I trash social media, yet I've managed to form all these really cool relationships. So I need to be quiet about social media, <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> but so talk to me about those essays. When did you decide to start writing those? Cause I, I loved them. And, and what, I guess we connected on Facebook and I started reading those things and, where did where did the idea initially come from for those? Well, so it's kind of funny, kind of circle back to our, our hometown football star. That was about um, about November of 2017, I want to say it was. Um, I was reading another article about him in our um, in our community um, that had been written in his in the Oklahoma State School newspaper, and and a 
local official or local leader, uh, ostensible leader who shall remain nameless, had given an interview in this school newspaper, this college school newspaper, and talked about Stanford being a being a dying community. And I thought, you know what? If that's the best we can do, if our own, you know, our our community leaders are going to call us dying to the outside world, then you know that's you know enough's enough. You know that needs to that needs to be. Um, we need to have some more positive-minded leadership and communication out there in the out there in the world. So that kind of inspired me to start start writing the um, just just to maybe you know because we see lots of things on Facebook. You know, you and I, you know, you can you can scroll Facebook to, book and get just detested with the political drama or the interpersonal drama or everything on there. And I thought, you know what, I just want to put some put something out there positive, do it weekly, um, so people can you know expect to read it and look for it. And uh, it's just something maybe inspirational or positive or forward-looking about about rural America, and that's where it kind of started. And and actually, that for that that essay I wrote about uh, vacant buildings and vacant people was actually the very first one that I made in in my weekly series. So you you write those things and you put them out, and and I mean they're they're definitely positive, but they're also realistic. I mean, it's not like you're you're blowing smoke. I mean, I, I feel like they're they're grounded in reality and and they um, fully embrace any challenges that are going on in small town America. Um, have you ever gotten any blowback for anything you've written on that? Surprisingly not. You know, I think I've been I've been very careful to um, to um, tailor it in such a way that it's, you know, that's forward looking, but realistic. And, you know, I've told people uh, a long time, but long time before I was elected mayor that if you come with a problem, but you don't come with a solution, then you're then you're just grappling, and nobody yeah. wants to hear that. And so I do that same thing. I, that's why I'm very honest in these articles and in these essays. And like you say, I don't want to blow sunshine and pretend like everything is great because then you just ride the ride the sinking ship, you know, into the into the depths of the ocean. Uh, well, you got to be realistic that you got things challenges that you face that rural America needs to fix, needs to improve. Um, but every but I try to spin those into a positive. That's here's our challenge. Let's work for a solution or I'm thinking of a solution and I'll come back to that, you know, in, in a future essay. That's why it's never come across. I try to never come across as graphing or or a negative. I always want it to be if there's a negative, then it's it's how to turn that negative into a, into something positive. And I'm sure I'm sure there's people who mouth about me, you know, but they just haven't ever done it, haven't ever done it directly. So uh, that's, I guess, out of sight, out of mind as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, definitely. And. So mayor, let's talk about that. When did you decide that you would run for mayor? What what was the thought process that that went into that? So I had been on on city council for for two. I'd served I served a couple of terms, I guess three terms, and um, had decided um, had several people had asked me when I ran for reelection city council the last term, which would have been twenty. Uh, 2016. They said, you know, you really ought to think you ought to, you know, ought to consider running for mayor. And at that point in time, I didn't, I didn't feel, um, I didn't feel like I was ready. I didn't feel like, you know, in my professional life because the mayor is a is a part time gig that pays a whopping fifty dollars a month. Uh, <laughs> so it's not a, it, it's not a professional mayor job, and I can't live on fifty dollars a month. So. Um, <laughs> So I said, you know, not right now. Um, really didn't, and, and really, I would not have run until I kind of had my my vision and my ideas formulated too. And, I, and so I just said, you know, now's not the time. Maybe next time. Well, I guess in that ensuing term as city manager, or excuse me, as a city councilman, we had some some stuff uh, transpire within the city. Maybe just the differences of difference in style of leadership and. 
forward thinking for the community. And it, I think it became abundantly out clear to me that, um, uh, that I needed to run, that the community needed a change in, in leadership and a, and a, hopefully a breath of fresh air. And so I, so I decided I was going to, I was going to run and, uh, the election wasn't until May of, of, 2018, but I actually made the announcement in June of 2017 to kind of get the get the drum beating and get people's ideas, minds going and ideas working. And you know, rode in the rode in the rodeo parade with a on a wagon with my uh, James Decker for mayor sign on both sides of the wagon to get things stirred up. And so I kind of agitated out there for for the better part of a year. And then we had the election in May of 2018 and I was, I was fortunate enough to be elected. So when you, you know, you obviously had a vision when you went into it, but now that you, you've been in it for a while, um, what's the biggest surprise of, of holding that job and, and holding that role in the community? You know, I would say, I hate to say there's a big surprise. I think people get surprised about being in those roles if they hadn't, haven't been in them before. Yeah. I uh, haven't been on the been on the city council for multiple terms. I, you know, I knew what I was getting into. I went into it eyes wide open. I kind of knew the ins and outs of, of things. I will say probably the biggest surprise to me have been, you know, you know, you, you can look at voter turnout. You know, it's, it's good. It's not, you know, there's not 100 percent of people showing up to vote. Uh, Stanford probably does better than, you know, Texas average. But, you know, Texas is a low turnout state. You know, the, um, you know, the uh, people don't come to city council meetings, you know, and you know, they don't pack the room unless there's a unless there's a major issue. But it's been surprising and encouraging to know how many people do care and how many people are concerned and how many people are watching. And even if they don't, they're not showing up to meetings or every week, um, they still know. Because one of the things I really wanted to key on and, and you know, the essays kind of put it out there that, that, that it was important to me. But I've tried to do this in, you know, various updates, you know, is, is to communicate with the people. You know, yeah. the city's doing is if the city is is doing good stuff, you know, if we're getting a grant for an infrastructure project or if our police are throwing drug dealers in prison, you know, so on and so forth. Um if if people don't know about it, then they just assume you're not doing anything. Yeah. So it's important to communicate with the people. And the flip side is when people disagree. If you if if you just blow people off and do something they don't like or don't tell them about it, then they're going to be mad. But if you come out to the community and say, "Look, folks, I know this is what you. I know this is important. Here's why we can't do this just yet. Or here's why we're going a different direct in, direction than you know you and I may disagree personally." People will respect and appreciate you communicating with them and telling telling them why even if they don't disagree, even if they don't agree with you, they'll say, you know what? Thank you for telling me. And I appreciate it being an informed decision. I understand why you can't do that fast enough or as to suit me or why you and I disagree on this. And, and so people understand that they may not always say it. They may not always beat your down, your door down to tell you, but they may just like randomly hit you up at church or in the grocery store or a football game or something to tell you, they appreciate you or tell you they paid attention to something that you thought that you really didn't expect people to be paying attention to. So they're always watching and they're always, um, and, and so that puts a that's a burden of expectation. And I, I don't mm-hmm. say burden like a bad thing, but it's a burden. Uh, you know, I, I don't take lightly the 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 uh, enthusiasm with which I was elected mayor. Um, and so that puts a lot of expectation. People didn't uh, I didn't run for the office just for the sake of getting to be called mayor and enjoy the title. And people didn't people didn't elect me for that sake either. They elected me to do things and, and they're counting on me. And so I take I don't take that responsibility lightly. So with mayor, you know, there, there's all the kind of technical stuff that comes along with it, you know, keeping the city, keeping the city running and, and overseeing things. But when you kind of zoom out a little bit and think about big issues, 
and kind of the big picture and, and maybe the the overarching idea or reason why you decided to get in into that and take on that responsibility. What what is the biggest if you could if you just had to narrow it down to one thing and I know that's hard but what is the biggest issue facing facing Stanford and the surrounding area and what's your ideas for you know fixing it or or uh, I guess attacking that challenge head on. You know, the I've told people, they said, you know, well, you don't have time to be mayor. You know, you know, when I was running and they said, you know, you know, how are you going to do this, that and the other? And I said, look, we have city staff who runs the administrative functions of yeah. the city. Uh, the the mayor is in um, small town. Mayors don't always operate in this function, but lo- big city mayors do better um, uh, the, in that regard, and I think uh, small town mayors could, could learn a lesson there is that your mayor, like it or not, is the face of your community. Yep. And he sets your community, the tone, the expectations, the big picture vision. So that's that's kind of the, the approach I've taken to the job is to, to change the level of tone, um, the vision, the expectation for the future and, and to tackle that challenge. And that's and it's it's kind of the big picture challenge, but it's the just the ongoing challenge that faces rural America. And, you know, it's not something that cropped up overnight. You know, if you look at it, rural America has been in, been in decline for probably 50 or 50 or 60 years for the better part of, uh, of the you know, last half of the 20th century and of just slow, steady decline in population. Part of that is due to changes in, and, you know, world economics and, you know, population shifts. And, you know, part of it is we were, uh, we in agriculture were, we're too darn good at our jobs and too darn good at technology. You know, the, I heard somebody say something the other day that um, said, well, if it's good for our farmers, then it's good for our community. And to some extent, that's true. But if you look at all the revolutionary changes in um, in agriculture over the last you know, 50 to 60 years, the mechanization of agriculture, um, that has been the result of the population decline because what it would take, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 uh, people to um, to put in a cotton crop, grow it, and harvest it from start to finish. Those same jobs can be done with one or two or three people, and so those folks aren't living in our communities anymore. And you know that's not to say that we shouldn't have done it that way. You know, then you know it's. I'm glad. You know, I'm glad that our um, the agriculture industries have been more successful and become more efficient in those regards. But it has resulted in population changes in our. Uh, in our communities. And so I think the big ta- big challenge is to realize that that's only going to continue. We're mm-hmm. not suddenly going to go back to 1950s in cotton farming or uh, or uh, raising cattle, nor should we. I mean, that's, you know, if you look at, you know, people like to talk about the good old days and I always like to remember, I always like to ask people, well, whose good old days were it? Yeah. Were they? Because you, because, because your good old days might not have been the same for the ones who were, uh, who were on the, on the, uh, ugly side of, of those good old days. And it's all relative. So I think the, I think the big, that big challenge is to recognize the wet, the world, we're not going to go put genies back in the bottles and, and change things and bring them back to a nostalgic idyllic time that no longer exists. We have to figure out how to adapt into the modern world and figure out what our sales pitch is that, okay, it's not 1920, it's not 1950, it's not, not, not 1980. Why should people want to live in, Stanford, Texas, or rural America in 2019, and then go sell that story and and pitch that and, te- and to the world because we don't always do a great job of telling our story either. As to, you know, as as a sales pitch, a pitch of why you should live here because I live here, my dad lived here, my granddad lived here, my great granddad lived here. People 
people don't care about that in 2019. Yeah. Uh, you know, or some degree they they might that might intrigue them. But why is it a worthwhile place? Just because it was a great place for your granddad to live doesn't mean it's a great place to live in 2019. So these places are still great places to live, but we need to be able to tell that story to attract new people. So when you think about economic development in your community and just generally small town communities, what you know what are the the kind of beacons of hope or the what you look towards or the kind of the best case scenario of how things could play out to keep the community intact. I mean you don't want it obviously to turn into some kind of crazy suburb kind of thing. Keep the community intact but but continue to uh, have that economic activity that allows people to have jobs and a good way of life and maybe attract a few people here and there. Sure. You know, one of the things we talked about about earlier was folks moving to suburbs and, you know, What's interesting is is the trends in suburbs and exurbs. You know, people move to the city and then they're moving out and then they're moving a little farther and farther out. You know, people are looking for the close knit community, the small town dynamic, all these things. And uh, you know, there are, there are suburbs in Texas and elsewhere that have built you know faux town squares yeah. and have have developed the community around that town square. And I'm thinking. For crying out loud, we've got a town square <laughs> that was put in in 1900. Nobody had to create it. It's the, it's the real thing. It's a it's an old school one way square too that you'd have to drive all, all the way around one way. So um, people are seeking you know, that quality of life and that that close knit community dynamic. And you know we need to be able to pitch them that hey we've got the real thing here rather than you having to create one. Uh, and you know technology is the you know, you can make lots of gripes about technology has made our world too efficient and has caught, impacted a lot of jobs, whether it be agriculture or journalism or manufacturing or whatever. But technology is also an opportunity. Uh, you know, just like here we are scoping right now. Yeah. You know, people can people can work and and do things more remotely and from farther away than they've ever been able to do before. You know, we had some folks who moved to Stanford um, within the last year and bought an old historic home. And then one of the pillar, one of the old historic homes in the community, three stories with columns and this colonial design that was built by one of the town's early real estate developers. And this this house was put up for sale, and there were people in town that said, you know, that all oh, that house won't ever sell. They'll never get that thing sold. And it was bought by some people from out of state who um, who work remotely in technology, and they had been looking for a cool house like this somewhere. And some friends of theirs saw it on Zillow or wherever and said, hey, y'all ought to check this out. And they went and saw it, checked it out, and then moved to Stanford with no connection whatsoever because they said, we can live anywhere we want to, and we want to live in a cool old house like this and buy it at a relatively cheap price compared to uh, – housing costs and the, you know, booming communities in the, in the West that they came from. So, you know, people can live here and work remotely in Dallas or, or Los Angeles or, you know, New York, wherever they want to, uh, and have a quality of life where, you know, you can be at Walmart in five minutes. You can, um, you can be at, you know, you know, you can be at a shopping mall or a Starbucks or whatever, in you know, 40, 45 minutes, which in the grand scheme of things is not much which is not much farther than you would if you were living in the living in the suburbs and trying to trying to get to those places in the in the city, uh, especially during high traffic. Um, you know, you've got quality schools, uh, low, um, you know, just a you know low cost of living. Uh, so technology provides an opportunity to to bring people to rural America that they couldn't have 20 years ago. Yeah, my my hometown is 
going through that right now. You know, it, it, there's not really a, a major industry there. It is there's a lot of agriculture, but there have been a, whenever I go home, my parents will introduce me to new people that they that have moved to town with no connection at all, but live there in the little downtown area, and they're either they're either retired or they're telecommuting, you know, to somewhere else thanks to the internet. And it's a pretty cool deal because they get to live in this really nice, tight knit community with really nice people who welcome them, welcome them in. They're, you know, an hour from a big city and everything is unbelievably cheap. It's really it's really pretty awesome. And it sounds like that's the same thing y'all have going there. Um, thinking about you, this, you've just got this um, real appreciation and understanding about the importance of community. You've got uh, uh this desire and almost like a need to to serve and to lead. What are there any books or historical figures or people that you've looked to that you admire who have helped kind of shape your philosophy on on this on the importance of community leadership, kind of how you want to be? I know a one person that we both are obsessed with, but I'll let you talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, um, in our notes beforehand, you brought up brought up Wendell Berry. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And he's a really interesting guy. And, you know, there are things I agree with him on and things I don't agree with him on. But, you know, his entire, um, I guess his entire um, writing perspective comes from the importance of place and people having a connection to their place. And that's why he writes, you know, about his place in Kentucky. And, you know, I think that's something. And, and there was a guest of yours not that long ago that talked about uh people having a connection to the play to place and that's why it was important for them to get outdoors and have a connection to the outdoors you know that's kind of a big perspective that i come from is uh you know wendell berry and you know any others who just write on the, who understand who get that importance of place because when people feel more connected to the place they live and it's not just a a random a random house on a random street in a place that looks like looks like every, everywhere else and doesn't mean anything to them you know they they treat their neighbors uh, better. They work together. Um, they work to improve the community and invest themselves in the invest themselves in the community. And and I think and it has had a lot of societal blowback too because if you care about your place rather than you know political party or specific issue or whatever, then if you vote with your place, then it makes you a more I think it, I think it makes you a a better um, a better citizen. Uh, you know and, and you know we can we can talk about the um we can cross the we, we, we can go ahead and cross the threshold into into teddy roosevelt but you know <laughs> you know he always you know, that's the thing that was important to him was you know the citizen you know gave a speech called citizenship in a republic and and so much of his writing and his speeches were about people having a connection um to their place to their society to the people around them and doing something with it and not just existing within within society and i think in our modern world and that's where technology can be an issue is we just kind of just kind of float and i think all of us have a tendency to probably do it from day to day is maybe you know we just kind of float from point a to point b just trying to survive our to-do list and and deal with you know all the things that we got to do and we're you know disconnected we're just scrolling on facebook or whatever instead of really being connected to our to our society and to our community and that's that's what's important so when you think about wendell berry is there a specific book or essay that he's written that you would recommend people read if you had to if you had to suggest one and then as far as tr what's your favorite tr book well so on on wendell berry you know i think it'd be hard to 
I think, you know, he's got several books of essays. Um, I think people just um, people ought to just check those check those out. You know, uh, the the one essay that um, that really or the one topic that really gets me is the and you've seen this um, in my writing is the the concept of the homecomers. Yes, yes. You know, it's the people who who decide you know who they left and went away for the because the world was world was better and somewhere else and they wanted to uh, wanted to find something and then, then they decided to come back and, and and they wanted to come back and make an impact on their place and also um and and also and be connected to that place and so i you know i think that's a that, that's the topic that's really i think getting after getting after me right now is the uh is the um um, it's just that concept of the homecomers and trying to trying to put that into um, trying to put that into real um, into use in, in Stanford. You know, one of his probably the most more popular essays is called the unset or book of essays is called the unsettling of America culture yep. and agriculture. You know, that's a good one. You know, people aren't always going to, you know, maybe going to agree with everything in there. And um, and that's fine. And I don't necessarily agree with everything in there. You know, when you had Jess Womack on here a few several episodes back yeah. he was talking about you know cattle conventions and that sort of thing should should have speakers that aren't just telling them what they want to hear um but but are wanting to challenge people and make them think and i think that's really important i think you can believe you can you can have your beliefs and 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 read things that maybe you disagree with that but that challenge you and make you better and make you maybe shape or shift or um sharpen um the things that you believe too so i agree with that completely i, I feel like you know, worst case scenario, if you hear something you don't agree with, it just bolsters the idea you had to begin with and you feel more confident with it. You know, best – and I see – I do see this as best case. You change your mind and you learn something new and you got a new idea. I mean, I heard this – some guy named Sam Harris that I admire said, I don't want to be wrong for one second longer than I have to be. That's and right. so, I, you know, I love being challenged on that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, sometimes I'll get a little – I'll get a little bristled or whatever, get a little, like, defensive, but, but – I know that I need to be listening to stuff that I don't agree with, and I, I welcome it. Um, yeah. so I'm, I'm with you on that. Well, you know, and in, in the um, not to go too deep, but down the political road, but you know, we're talking about you know, I see people that I know that are ostensibly grown adults who are you know firing off. They see some tweet they don't like from you know from some congressman you know that they disagree with and you know and they fire off an angry tweet and like you don't know what you're talking about if you lived out here you'd understand and I I just shake my head and I think you know that'll definitely teach them <laughs> your tweet your random tweet on a Wednesday afternoon suddenly changes their their worldview uh, but then you hear these these conversations about you know a lot of these that have been on your podcast and you know start talking about why. Why grazing livestock is, you know, is the environmentally sustainable and, and environmentally conscious thing to do. You think you could have a serious conversation about science. You could have a serious conversation about whatever the topic is. You start thinking that that person who you think you are completely diametrically opposed to, if y'all actually sat down and had a conversation, you might realize there's some shared commonalities there that they maybe they don't understand your worldview. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's not through it's not through anything other than they don't come from the same place that you come from and and they need to understand that because they've never seen a herd of, of cattle up, up close and personal. They've never looked at a native prairie other than what they've seen on a picture or, or flying overhead or, or something like that. Maybe they might – because 
what the end result they want to accomplish, you know, a better society, you know, more prosperous society, better environment is actually the same thing you want. And we all want that together. So thinking about the political divide and how damn angry everybody seems to be, do you do you feel like in Stanford kind of on the local level there that that is that an issue for you dealing with the, these kind of polarized views or is it? Because everybody is such a tight knit community, people know each other, people know where they're coming from, they're they're more willing to entertain ideas that may be outside of, of what they think, or is it somewhere kind of in the middle there? Oh, I think people you know, Stanford's like anywhere else has people that have strong views on both sides of the political divide. You know, mm-hmm. it is a it is a current conservative community. Uh, you know, it's you know the Texas map is 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 red, and this is the reddest part of the of the map. You know, yep. there were there were, you know two counties over in King County. I think that was a place where they didn't have any Democrats at all vote in a <laughs> vote in the presidential election. Of course, there were only like ninety Republicans that voted, so it wasn't like it was a you know a huge deal. But um, Local, but local perspectives tend to um, you know, the local issues, the things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, the, um, the 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 major partisan issues on the state and national level um, have nothing to do with those things. You know, uh, water and sewer and streets and parks and you know people's you know t- property taxes, you know local taxes being too high. Those are largely not. Republican and Democratic issues. Yeah. You know, se- sewers are not water or not Republican or Democrat. You know, uh, streets are not or rep- conservative or liberal. So people have those views, and you know, and that's fine. And you know, I try not to wade too heavily into those partisan national politics issues on Facebook or elsewhere, just because I'll except to get people to thinking. You know, I will. I've probably. Uh, I've probably posted some things every now and then that have probably made people think I was a. Crazy liberal, and then other people think that I was a hardline conservative, and but really, I just you know, it's generally just a lack of disgust with with everybody and wanting to uh, wanting to see people get you know see people work for solutions, not just agitation, because you know so much of it, so much of the of the culture, the political culture is built around um, f- um, creating a problem. And agitating against that problem to fundraise, and then continuing to develop, you know, fundraise for your for your political organization or your campaign or whatever. And the problem is, if you solve the problem, then you don't have anything to continue to fundraise on. So you got to keep it. Either got to whip some people into a new frenzy, or keep the or make the problem continue to seem bad. So I don't have time for that. You know, local level, we got we got bigger issues to we got bigger fish to fry. So as soon as we get one set of problems solved, there will be something else to take care of. So I'm perfectly fine with solving a local problem and putting and putting it to bed and moving on to the next one. And I think people see that the same way. It seems like being a mayor is kind of the the perfect spot for somebody who wants to be in that world of government but doesn't want to deal with a bunch of the silly nonsense that just uh, you know dominates the the news i mean because what i mean you're basically it could be said that you're running a business i mean you you're you got to keep this thing going and and there's no time to get hung up on some issue that may or may not affect anybody um, some kind of far flung nonsense theoretical thing i mean you're dealing with nuts and bolts every day and you're dealing with real people that you have to see on a daily basis or at least a weekly basis and then come up to you in the grocery store. And I would think that would be really refreshing. I would think it would be hard if you got the personality like you have, a one to get stuff done, liking people, liking the community. I would think like trying to 
run for representative or senator or something like that would be – it's not the same skill set. Am I right in that? No, you're, you're exactly right. And, you know, I think that's why very few um, senators, you know, national senators have made – have been elected president and even fewer have been good presidents because yeah. the president, you know – it doesn't seem to it, in the last you know twenty years has not quite been that way. But the president has been a you know get stuff done, set the tone, be a be a leader type of job, not a get up and you know get up and make speeches and pontificate. And there's a whole lot of pontification in our state and national legislative branches. And it got and gosh, I just don't have I don't have time for pontificating. I got I got stuff to do, and I got people that are people that are counting on me and. And and you're right. It's uh, you know you can you can I could stand up and pontificate at a city council meeting about some hypothetical issue, and and then everybody can look at me and say, "Are you done?" Uh, you know, probably <laughs> we still got the same we still got the same problem we had when you started talking. So what's, what's, what are we going to salute? Have a solution here? <laughs> so we've got little girls that are about the same age. Uh, yours just turned one, or is getting ready to turn one. Mine is just just turned one a month or two ago. How has that changed your perspective on i guess just life in general but also this this the importance of service and the importance of community maybe it hadn't changed it but has it at all i think it has sharpened a lot of the things that i already that i already knew you know the importance of you know giving back to the community and being part of it and um to you know to fill those shoes of those folks who impacted me and you know that's you, you know that when you're um when you're in, um, you know, just hypothetically, but then when you have a daughter who, you know, five years from now is going to be in school in the same community that you went to school and, and is going to, uh, have all those same needs. then that's kind of, it's kind of where the rubber meets the road that you're not just impact, impacting hypotheticals or, or people, you know, other kids in the community. It's also going to matter to your, it's going to matter to your family too. And it's going to matter to your daughter. And, and you also see, you start seeing, you start paying attention from the perspective of that daughter or uh, who or whatever, or, you know, of all of the issues in the community or the in society that you probably didn't pay attention to as a, you know, as a teenage boy. And, you yeah. know, you know, you, you see all these all these societal issues and you think, you know, um, you think, God. gosh, was I was I an idiot like that when I was in high school or, <laughs> you know, at the very least was. Or, or was I just, or, or was I just, you know, oblivious and ignorant? You know, I, you know, maybe I wasn't that big of an idiot, but maybe I was oblivious and ignorant too. So I think when you have a child, it, it sharpens your mind to all the world around you and all those things that are going to affect affect that child. You know, now and on into the on into the future, both both on a micro level of you know, are the the teachers how are the teachers going to be at the school or whatever, and from a macro level, just society in general. I agree completely with that. I, I think it, it, you know, they say like when you're, if you make a, if you get really rich, it doesn't change you. It just brings out who you really are. I feel like with kids, it, it, uh, with me, it made me, uh, there was a lot less time for BS and a lot more focus on, all right, I got to really be the best person I can be, whether that's professionally or personally, because it's almost like you've got this person, or in my case, little people watching you and you want to, at least I want to be a good Example. <laughs> I want him to be proud of me. Dude, maybe it, I, 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 maybe oh, I'm too extra. Right. Yeah, extra. What do you? There's internally motivated and externally motivated. And maybe it's not a good thing that I'm motivated by other people watching me. But having knowing that those little girls are 
looking at me, it makes me want to ramp it up a few levels, you know? Absolutely, because those things do have consequences. It's just not you or it's not you and your and your spouse. Those kids are going to watch and, you know, um, and, you know, things that you say, not necessarily not necessarily bad things, not necessarily bad words, but just the things that you say around the house or, you know, figures of speech or, you know, those sort of things is that they're going to pick up all those things and know. So you better better make sure you're saying stuff they're proud of that you'd be proud of them saying at school. Oh, yeah. And like just setting the tone, you know, the energy in the house and the and my wife and I, you know, do it equally together. She she does a lot better job than I do. But that this, you know, setting a positive tone, setting a tone up like I always I do think about Teddy Roosevelt and just this energetic, you know, lean in, go hard tone, but but all with positive and with love. And I, I feel like that. I mean, I'm a much better person once since those kids arrived because <laughs> because it's as if somebody's just watching me and I've got to do better and better and better. It's it's pressure, but I, I love it. I, I think it's I'm, I'm much better off than I was <laughs> from a selfish standpoint. Well, well, you know, about the strenuous life and said, you know, you, you need those challenges and you need you need pressure and you need things to make you better to, to accomplish what you're meant to as a, as a as a human that, you know, you're not nobody accomplishes things when they're when they're laid back, kicked back and have an easy life and, and have the, you know, you know, enjoying the fruits of, you know, the re- reaping the rewards of riches and that sort of thing. They need to be challenged and, and doing something better with it. So I think that's true from the perspective of kids depending on you, too. There's this great book that I just got, and I just started it. Um, I'm only like 50 pages in, but I think you'd like it. It's called The Second Mountain by David Brooks, the New York Times columnist. And it's all about how the importance of finding work that that matters and that kind of has a higher purpose than just making money and um, the importance of community. And I don't know if you've heard of this thing, but I'll, I'll send you a copy of it because I think you will you will love it. It, it I wish I was farther into it um, than I am because I think there's a there's a ton of overlap between all the stuff you're working hard on and the, the stuff that he talks about. So that's a plug for that. I think I think you'll love it. But everybody listening, if this conversation is of interest, I think that book would be of great interest. So one thing we had texted a bit about was you had listened to my podcast with Russ Schnitzer, um, the, who's the conservationist, and he and I had been talking about the importance of being aggressive in land conservation and not aggressive like in a cutthroat way, like some kind of dishonest or, or slimy business practices way, but this just aggression of knowing the importance of the work you're doing and really, like I said, leaning into it and going hard at it every day. And you, you had texted me that you thought that was, that there were a lot of parallels to the way you think about community building and economic development in communities. And so could you just talk a little bit about why that idea of aggression kind of struck you? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that y'all said that, that struck me was, um, was how important it was, you know, that it, you know, all oh, this is just nonprofit work, laid back, kicked back and easy, but no, no, this has a real tangible impact. Um, and I think that just hit me that that is exactly the same way, you know, community development, you know, rural economic development is not just giving somebody an excuse to have a comfortable job. that's going to pay them pretty well to go to a few conventions and conferences and tell everybody what's going on in the community or, you know, elsewhere and bringing it back to the community. I mean, these are the topics that are the lifeblood of the future of our community. That if we don't, uh, that if we don't 
aggressively pursue, you know, new business opportunities or, you know, improving our infrastructure, improving our quality of life here. You know, there are communities that, you know, may cease to exist within one or two or two generations or at the very least hang on as as ghost towns. So, um, you know, rural economic development is not a um, is not just a topic to, you know, pal around about and just think about and ponder and but never do anything with. It's a topic that requires that creation and you know, creativity and innovation and and applying business principles and applying you know you know whether you're trying to attract capital and you need you need finance principles or you're trying to market your community or whatever it requires that aggressive approach just like a startup company or or whatever the case may be otherwise you know if if you you care you care about your community enough to be involved and to care about the future of the community, then by golly, you need to, you need to work at it and do it aggressively and do it the right way or don't do it at all. I couldn't, I couldn't have said that better. That's, um, I love hearing that. And I feel like when, whenever you see somebody nine times out of 10, when you see somebody who's been successful, no matter what they're doing, it's because they have that attitude. And a lot of times that, that attitude, or you see that aggression in, in just straight up business where the end goal is, you know, return on shareholder investment, which, you know, that, that is important, but, I think when you're talking about the work you're doing, I think most people would agree that these community development and, and trying to keep these towns running, that is as important as it gets on just a very, very base level. So I'm glad to know you've got that that um, perspective as well because I think it's, it's so important. Um, one, one more thing about just Texas in general. I know you're a big history buff just like I am. And so when you think about Texas, like if I, if I wanted to learn more about Texas history, are there one or two or three books you would recommend, like a good place to start where I could just dig in on that? Because the reality is I don't think I've read many strictly Texas books. So the, you know, kind of the quintessential Texas history book is called Lone Star by T.R. Fehrenbach. Uh, it's it's a long book. It's seven or eight hundred pages, uh, but it's a it's a comprehensive history of the state from you know the from the natives to the to the Spanish uh, conquest on in through the through independence and and the development of the state. You know that's kind of the the Texas. Um, the Texas history book. So if, if if somebody wants to understand the history of Texas, you know, that's, that's an important one to read. You know, there's a book called Lone Star Nation, uh, written by H.W. Brands, who's a, who's a historian who used to be at Texas A&M, now he's at the University of Texas. And he's written a lot of great books. He's written books about Andrew Jackson and Benjamin Franklin and J.P. Morgan. And he's just a really interesting historian. It's a very, it's a very readable book and Mm -hmm. it gets into a lot of the history of what transpired, what caused, um, why did Sam Houston get so come to Texas and get involved in the revolution was, you know, what was really going on at the retreat back East towards San Jacinto? Was he trying to get close enough to the American border that Andrew Jackson could send the American troops to fight the, to fight the Mexican army? Really interesting stuff there. So those are kind of the two just general Texas history books. If you want to learn just the general overall history. No, those are great. Um, I've got a, a H.W. Brand's book about T.R. somebody gave me, and it's it's massive, but I, I want to read it. Um, it. It looks it looks really good. And if you don't follow T.R. or if you don't follow H.W. Brand's on Twitter, he's been doing a he's been tweeting the history of America in haiku form, <laughs> and 
like periodically he'll tweet just different haikus about like what's going on in the development of America. And it's just really amazing and really interesting. Cool. I'll check that out. So speaking of books, actually, so, so I've got these quick questions I ask people at the end. I think this is a perfect transition to, to go into those. Can, are you good? Can we do that real quick? Absolutely. Awesome. So what is, if not just Texas, but the West in general, if you had to name one or two of your favorite books about the West, what comes to mind there? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna request to name more than one or two. Yeah, so go just let it rip. Possible. Man. Let it so, rip. You know, you and I have talked about this one before, but uh, Goodbye to a River mm-hmm. is is one, one probably the, my favorite book all time about Texas, and it's a uh, it's you know it's a part history book, part uh, philosophical book, part travel diary of John Graves uh, riding a uh, riding his canoe down down the Brazos River in the 1950s when he thought this stretch of the river was going to be dammed up. It's where he'd spend his youth, and uh, he's essentially saying goodbye to the river. And, you know, there were going to be like five reservoirs built, but I think only two of them ended up being built, partly because of the in- influence of, of this book. And it's, it's very interesting and enjoyable, but it's also, I guess, that's a good, it's a little bit sardonic, I guess, where he mm-hmm. thinks, you know, all things are, you know, these things are changing and I hate it. But, you know, I guess when I was a kid, things were different than the generation before. And, and so it, it's very kind of a pragmatic, sardonic look at things that, yeah, things are changing, but it's also kind of how the world world goes. So let's make the make the best of it. Uh, it's really so that's that's one of my favorites that I that I recommend to everybody. And I've sent copies of it to different people over the years, you know, um, Empire of the Summer Moon. I've seen several people heard several people yeah. mention it on this. On this, if you really want to understand the settlement of Texas and especially West Texas and and battling the Comanches, you need to read that book. You know, it's it's brutal. You know, I listened to it on Audible, and I there were a couple of times I I just had to stop and uh, take a break and and listen to some music or do something different because it was I was listening to it on a road trip and. It gets pretty intense. Yes, but it also kind of gives you appreciation for the realness of what of what happened, um, of what happened on the on the frontier. Because this is not a you know a Stephen King film or a you know a slasher novel or something. This is just this is real life. It, it, this is what actually happened to people on the um, you know on a day to day basis. So I would definitely recommend that. You know. I know you're not a fiction guy, and I know you you fret about wanting to get involved in fiction. Um, and so, if you've never read an Elmer Kelton book, I would definitely recommend those. Um, he was a novelist. Um, he's generally agreed to be one of the greatest Western novelists of all time. You know, cool. he used to say that unlike uh, he's from West Texas, he lived in San Angelo. He was the he was the editor of the Livestock Weekly newspaper. Now his son is the editor of it. And then you know, so which is the one of the foremost publications in the Texas livestock industry and you know, oh, on the side, on the side, he became one of the greatest Western novelists of all time. So that's, that's the guy awesome. that made best, made made good use of his time on Earth. But you know, he used to always say that uh, Louis Lamour's novels, and I love Louis Lamour. I've read most of his novels, but he used to say that Louis Lamour's characters were, you know, six foot and you know, dark and tall, dark and handsome, and his guys were five foot ten and nervous. Yeah, <laughs> and um, and the time it never rained. Um, it's one of the best books ever written about Texas. It's about the drought of the 1950s. I've heard of and that this one. guy. Oh man, you need to, you need to read it. And it's about this one guy. He's a cattle and sheep rancher. And it's about him struggling through the drought and refusing government assistance and getting called a fool by all of his neighbors and friends and family and, and just trying to just gut it out. And, you know, it's, it's fiction, but you know, I read that and there's, I mean, there are lines that he's, that he's said that, um, you know, that I've heard, you know, people, People in, in real life say, I mean, like there are shades of that guy's of Charlie Flagg's personality that I see 
I see in, in, you know, my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation. And, and so he, it's, it's a very relatable, r- relatable real book that could have been a, somebody's diary about the, about the 1950s drought in Texas. Awesome. See, yeah. I, I got then, no excuse to not be reading more fiction when we got recommendations like that, you know? Absolutely. And then, of course, you know, I know that you you're into these, but, you know, the the Teddy Roosevelt books, you know, the the Edmund Morris trilogy, the rise of Theodore Roosevelt, Theodore Rex and Colonel Roosevelt. People need to read those. Yeah, I think the rise of Theodore Roosevelt and I, I say it all the time and I think people may think I'm joking, but I really do think it's the best book of all time. It's I love I love it. it. That book changed my life reading that. I, Me too. It's, it's, it's my favorite of the three for sure. Yeah, it really is. I always say that, you know, the TRs, the, the least interesting thing TR did was be president. I mean, it, and exactly pe- you know, people just think that he and he was awesome president. If, if he had had a, a war or something, he, he would be probably a top three president. But because it was relatively smooth sailing, he, he wasn't challenged in the way that like FDR, or George Washington or Lincoln were. But he um, but that that first 41 years of his life, they got crammed about 10 lives worth of stuff just in that first 41 years. It's insane. You know, and that book starts, you know, with him, I think he's like swimming naked in Rock Creek or something and <laughs> yeah. just, just being, you know, and boxing in the White House. And you're thinking like, you know, who is this guy to start off with? And, you know, in the book ends with him becoming president and the, you know, the, the big, um, the big party boss saying that damned cowboy just became president. <laughs> and man, you just, and then every, and it's, and it, it's just a rollicking good time from start to finish all through there and, and incredibly inspiring too. It is. Cause you think, or I think if I could just do 5% of what that guy did, you'd be doing pretty damn well. And I mean, the amount that that guy crammed in, he was manic, you know, you wonder a guy like that nowadays, would he be able to make it through adolescence without being heavily medicated? Cause he was so manic, but, um, many, many lessons to learn from that guy. Um, Absolutely. I, the, the, uh, obsession level just continues to intensify and it's starting to concern my wife, but that's all right. Well, we may have to do a second podcast just on Theodore Roosevelt. We could definitely do that. I mean, maybe just start like an entire new podcast. <laughs> it's just there you go. me and you once a week talking about TR. Um, all right, here's a good one. Any doc, any favorite, uh, documentaries or films? Well, first of all, we got to start with the greatest story ever told, and that's Roadhouse. You got that right. That is exactly right. That's a documentary, actually. If not, it should be. I mean, that's <laughs> it's. You know, my wife says, you know, I, I keep it on the, um, I keep it on the DVR, uh, and it drives her nuts because she thinks when you take something off the DVR, watch something off the DVR, you should delete it. Well, that one's I keep available at all times, and recently. <laughs> I had a network TV version of it on there that was, you know, it was, it was edited and, you know, yeah. you know, cut out a few parts cause they had commercials. And then, so I did a search on the DVR and I found three different showings that were coming up on different channels and I recorded all three of them <laughs> to see, so I could view each of them independently and decide which was the best cut that I wanted to keep. So when she came in and found three roadhouse recorded three different times, <laughs> you can imagine how excited she was about that. But I try. I try to watch it at least once a month to keep to, to stay inspired because you know his you know Dalton's Dalton's um, mantra for cleaning up the bar has uh, has got a lot of applicability. It needs to be a leadership book, actually. I've, I've told you I'm going to write a very serious, very long and detailed uh, essay to put on LinkedIn about leadership lessons from Dalton, specifically the the scene at the beginning 
at the, when he takes over at the double deuce and he gives us three rules. And it's yeah, be nice, man. Uh, yeah, that's it. Just be nice. That's all you got to do. No, I'm Roadhouse is the greatest movie of all. It's my favorite movie of all time, which means it's the greatest movie of all time to me. And I don't if people have not seen that, they need to see it immediately. It's free on Amazon Prime. So go see it now. I mean, they're just giving away free on Amazon Prime. They're just giving it away. Gold. They're giving you gold life lessons. Yes. So, there, there's you know, much actually, to learn there. I guess from the from the Western perspective, you know, um, Lonesome Dove is still my all time favorite, you know, Western movie. Yeah, uh, it's it's hard to beat, especially because you think about the fact that McMurtry was writing that novel and the and the movie was made to um, try to dispel the mythology of the American cowboy, and all he did was make it worse, <laughs> uh, which is really interesting to me. And have you ever heard the original casting on that on that movie when they originally tried to make it? No, I haven't. So it's going to be John Wayne and uh, Henry Fonda. Really? And, you know, as, as, as interesting as that would be, I don't see how that would have been anywhere near as good as uh, Tommy Lee Jones and, and uh, Robert Duvall. I agree. That's I, I'd never heard that. That's really interesting. Huh. Yeah, that'd yeah. be a completely different deal altogether. Um, all right. So you've obviously got a very full life between – where we haven't even talked about your your legal practice on top of everything else that you're doing, but you got you know your your regular job as an attorney, family, your role as mayor. What what do you do for fun in any downtime? You know, much to my wife's chagrin, you know, uh, reading and writing about rural development is kind of one of my hobbies. You know, I like to do that for fun. I like to sit around and ponder things. And uh, but you know, in our um, you know, we my family has a cow calf operation and and runs um, you know runs some cows and uh, grazes uh, on pasture, native pasture and then you know improved pasture and cropland and one of my things that I uh, love to do is I really love native grasses. That's why the Jim Howell podcast were like crack to me. Like mm-hmm. I, I mean that's should have been should have been illegal. <laughs> Um, it, it was, it was so enjoyable, but you know, I actually have some, I actually have some native grass growing behind my house, like trying to put together some test plots, cool. um, kind of learning what grows and won't grow. And, uh, I told my wife the other day that, um, that one of my, that our lot behind our house is about a half an acre. Uh, and I really wanted to just turn, turn the whole thing, except for her part that's her, the garden. I wanted to turn it into a complete, you know, like a restored native prairie. And she just rolled her eyes and just said, you know, just... <laughs> I think she told me that I needed to get the things done in the yard that she wanted me to get done, before, that she had been asking me to get done before I take out some bushes or something before I before I started on uh, you know restoring the native prairie to 1880. <laughs> yeah, those those Jim Howell podcasts are great, and for people who want to learn anything about grasses and the importance of grasslands, those are. I mean, it's like probably three hours worth of of listening to one of the masters talk about it. So I. Yeah, it's like the, three hours, but it seems like fifteen minutes. Yeah, it really. It's he's so good at talking about that stuff, and he's such a cool guy on top of it. So, yeah, I'll have links to those. Um, what is your favorite location in the West? And it could be a town, a specific ranch, a trail, just anywhere that is important to you. You know, it's it's going to sound cliche and probably expected, but you know, just really this part of the world uh, is really just my favorite part of the West. I mean, you can drive out of Stanford for about 10 minutes and be out in the, um, out in the hills and the, uh, red, the red, uh, red clay dirt and the, uh, nothing you can, and nothing as far as I can see, except just, just pasture and, and, you know, you know, native grasslands and, uh, mesquite trees. And, you know, it, it looks like it, you know, not too far from like it did in, in 18, 
80 and you know and you can drive you know if you've if you've never spent any time in west texas kind of around the cap rock area like between you know east of lubbock you know or you're driving between guthrie and crosbyton and you're driving through these canyons and and especially around sunrise and you're just driving through these these the cap rock uh canyons and and the sun is just uh gleaming off of those off those cliffs and it's it's really amazing it really it makes you feel feel kind of how you know this kind of part of the world if you spend or anywhere any part of the world that you spend time in too much time in can can feel ho-hum at some point but sometimes you just need to be rejuvenated by one of those uh by one of those drives out early morning where you just realize it's a pretty cool place to live even yeah. if you don't even if you take it for granted sometimes and, yeah. you know one of the and i will say one other one other place so just place that i visited that's probably the most beautiful place on earth that i've ever been to was lake louise alberta canada oh yeah and, i've never been uh, there just in, oh man you know there's that that, old, that hotel that was built by the Canadian Pacific Railway that's right there on the lake. And that lake is so deep blue and green. And we've all seen pictures of it. It looks amazing. And, you know, I've been hiking up in the in the hills around the mountains around around that lake. But it's one of those places that pictures really, really cannot do it justice. And you look there and you're just like, holy cow, this this is as is an incredibly beautiful place as there is on the earth. Yeah, I need to get up there. I've seen so many photos. I've I've never been to the Canadian Rockies. I I just have to get up there. Um, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? That's a hard one. So um, I've been thinking about this, and you know, one of the ones that keeps coming back to me was some advice my dad gave me years and years ago, and and that was that no matter how successful you are in life, there's always going to be somebody that's smarter, that's wealthier, that's more talented whatever it is. So uh, just don't compare yourself to others because you're never going to end up number one, even when you think you're number one. I mean, you could, you know, you know, Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett kind of had things in lockdown and now, and, and then Jeff Bezos is wealthier than them. So, yep. it's, so if, if even those guys are, can get out class, then, then you can too. So don't compare yourself to others. It's important to have goals and, you know, people that you admire and, and aspire to, you know, maybe emulate their success or, you know, their things that they do in life, but don't compare yourself because if you compare yourself to others, you're always going to end up disappointed. That's very wise advice. I've actually been thinking about that recently. Um, I think that that is very wise. Next to the last question, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast and as people that love the American West in one way or the other, um, make a request, offer some words of wisdom, ask them to do something, what comes to mind there? You know, I'm one of, you know, a lot of your folks have talked about, you know, people getting outdoors and that sort of thing. And, and I would, you know, encourage something similar to that, but it's connect to your place, mm -hmm. the place that you live, whether it's, you know, a place you grew up in or a place you're new to connect to that place and see why, you know, why it matters. Cause you know, there's, there's good people everywhere that are playing and it's not just Stanford. Everybody's place has a story. Everybody's place is generally worth, worth living and worth bettering. And if you have a place that's not worth living and not worth bettering or it isn't to you, then, you know, then why are you, why are you there? Or, or, or do you really want to be there? Yeah. Um, but if it, it is, um, you know, connect to that place, whether you're a, whether conservation is your thing or, or agriculture or, you know, being a local, being a local leader within the community, whatever it is, that, that connection, I think will give you a lot of, will give you more satisfaction about life and more um, and and just more uh, and more purpose. That is very wise words, um, and I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. So, 
how can people connect with you? You're, you're online in a lot of different forms. How can they connect with you? How can they connect with Stanford? What's the best, best places to look on the old internet? Well, I'm, I'm online probably far more than I, than I should be. <laughs> so I'm, I'm easy to track down. Uh, the, um, uh, I'm on Twitter at James Decker, 2006. I'm on Instagram at James M Decker, M as in Michael, and then I'm on Facebook as James Decker because heaven forbid I have uh, <laughs> social social media accounts that are the same across platforms. So cool. Well, I'll link to all that. But man, this was awesome, and I really, really, really admire the work you're doing. I mean, you could easily be sitting in downtown Houston using these talents to make some oil and gas company a few extra bucks, and you're using it for the betterment of your community. And I, I just really admire it. I think it's a inspiration no matter where people are from who are listening. So I, I wish you all the best and keep up the great work. Keep cranking out those essays. And I can't wait to watch as, as your, your career continues to evolve. Well, well, you keep up the great work too, Ed. You keep me, you and your guests keep me thinking all the time. So that's something I would encourage folks to listen to these podcasts. Even, even if you look at the topic and you think, oh, I don't know if that interests me or I don't know if I agree with that guy. I've always, I found all of them insightful and challenging in their own way. So all of us working to make others around us better is what, how, we, how we make this world go round. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, you can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.